Today is a holy day of opportunity, Pentecost Monday. And in honor of Pentecost, we're starting our Catechism Crisis series, talking about the nature of a catechism. Did you know there are more catechisms than just the catechism? Jesus is King. Welcome to the One Peter Five podcast, Rebuilding Christendom, Restoring Catholic Culture and Tradition. I'm Timothy Flanders, Editor-in-Chief of One Peter Five. I'm joined today by Tradivox, a.k.a. Aaron Sang, as well as Matthew Pleasy of catechismclass.com. Happy Pentecost, gentlemen. How are you doing? Thanks for coming on. I'm doing great. How are you? I am too blessed to be stressed, and uh, it is a wonderful (laughs) holy day of opportunity today. As uh, Matthew Pleasy's article points out, Forgotten Customs of Pentecost, the Pentecost Monday and Tuesday were both once holy days of obligation, so now they've passed into the holy days of opportunity. So today is very special, though, because I'm really happy to be joined by both of you gentlemen, because both of you are involved in our two lay sodalities here at 1 Peter 5. Um, We have the Crusade of Eucharistic Corporation, as well as the Fellowship of St. Anthony. And so if you go to our website, 1peter5.com, you can go to the Crusade, click on the Crusade. We're, we're going to be pushing this a lot during June. This is the um, June, obviously, is the, is the month of the octave of Corpus Christi. And we're also going to be pushing our other lay sodality that Matthew Pleasy is the founder and the manager of, which is our Fellowship of St. Anthony. Saint That's Nicholas. because, or sorry, sorry, Nicholas. Um, because we have, uh, not only we have the, the summer Lent in June, which we're, me and Matthew will be talking about later this week. That's the apostles fast. And so we'll be talking about that very soon, but to join our latest analysis, you can go to one Peter com. And also, as always, uh, we ask for your support because one Peter five is a nonprofit. We do have bills to pay and miles to feed. So go to one Peter five.com slash donate to help us out. So let's talk about the catechisms. We have two editors, catechists, authors of catechisms with us. First, I want to talk to about Aaron and your work. Aaron, tell me about your project, Tradivox. How did you get into this? Tell us about this. Sure thing. It uh, is a project some may be familiar with under the uh, Episcopal patronage of uh, Bishop Athanasius Schneider. This was so it's been a little over 10 years in the making, I guess, in some. It's essentially an effort to restu- recover, restore, uh, and republish some of, really the most outstanding of, uh, the Catholic catechisms, better part of the last millennium, as a cross-indexed, you know, cross-referenceable set. So we currently are, are working through uh, Sophia Institute Press. We, we partnered with them for the publishing of the hardbacks. Uh, it'll, it'll comprise 20 volumes uh, at least the initial set would be over 30 different catechisms kind of reflected in those volumes. So it, it does come as news. Uh, you mentioned <laughs> it does come as news to some that, you know, there's more than a few catechisms uh, in the Catholic tradition. There's, there are thousands in, in point of fact. Um, so what this series does and, and kind of our, the effort of the whole apostolate is to really curate some of the most outstanding that have been uh, published. We're starting just focusing on English language titles um, and, and really kind of holding those up, you know, to, for contemporary readers, especially in, in a mode where they can kind of talk to each other, 
So being able to cite, you know, at any given moment, here's kind of the apostolic doctrine as it was articulated in, you know, sub-Saharan Africa in the 1600s. Here it is, you know, again, in kind of pagan indigenous uh, North America, the early Jesuit uh, martyrs. Here it is further back. You have Aquinas, of course, all the great catechisms of the, uh, the, the catechetical doctors who we like to call the Peter Canisius, Bellarmine, uh, Aquinas, etc. So it's a it's a wide swath of, of time, you know, reflected as well as the content, which has this remarkable continuity uh, across time and space. So that's that's the project. Trying to yeah. And Aaron, can you just grab one of those volumes behind you and show it to the screen just so people can sure. see what this is all about? So what it looks like. So you've got all these um, volumes here. That's uh, looks like volume three. So yeah, you've you've got I've got uh, my set right here behind my left ear, um, <laughs> behind my head, as they should be uh, in my brain. Um, so you've got eleven volumes so far, and you've got plans for a twenty volume set. This is this is um, recommended and promoted not only by Bishop Schneider but also. Cardinal Burke, Bishop Strickland, Cardinal Muller also endorses this project. Um, and there's thousands of catechisms. So we'll have to get into how you chose these catechisms. Um, before we do that, Matthew, tell us about your main catechetical work is at catechismclass.com. Tell us about that. Yeah, so catechismclass.com is really the brainchild of Father uh, James Adelava. He was our founder in, in 2004, kind of when the internet was really coming online. What he wanted to do is he wanted to transmit and make available the timeless teachings of the faith using modern technology to reach people at his parish who couldn't attend religious education. But uh, after a time, very quickly on, the people really gravitated towards that, and he really saw a need to spread it more in the universal church, especially in this time of doctrinal crisis and an uncertainty. Uh, and not even just that, with legitimate family concerns, people were unable to make religious education classes. He found people were unable to convert because, you know, the priest told him you couldn't make this RCA class this particular day, so you're not becoming Catholic unless you change your schedule around and you quit your job quite literally and you find a new job because it's only Wednesdays at seven o'clock. So all these stories he heard is why we created this and why we expanded from offering just children's religious education to offering education for adults who want to convert it, lifelong Catholics who just want to learn more. I mean, I've had priests take courses who say they learn things. You know, I, I continue to try to learn something new every day. So that's our mission and making faith available for all ages and all backgrounds and We've been privileged to have uh, Cardinal Burke as our um, as one of our uh, supporters, Bishop Robert Vasa, a number of other people too, uh, including clergy, who see the real need for that in a parish setting, not just for sacramental preparation, of which we do a lot of that, but just teaching and transmitting the timeless faith in this era. Excellent. And you, Matthew, you are also the author of a catechism, the Roman yes, Catechism Explained for the Modern World. So how, how did this book come about? Why did you see the need to write this? So this was uh, the result of a project that I did with Catholic Family News, where I explained the, the Roman Catechism, that is the Catechism of the Council of Trent, uh, month by month for over a three-year period. And this book is a compilation of those articles. Because the Roman Catechism is, is so timeless and so important, but it's not written uh, in a language that's really relatable to a lot of people today. And secondly... Um, we wanted to augment it to really explain how the timeless teachings of the catechism apply to our crises today, whether that be 
crises in the family against abortion or contraception or communism or socialism or materialism, or even just mentioning things that are no longer widely taught in modern catechisms. Like what is the worst of all mortal sins? That is not taught in the modern catechism. It is taught in, in this book. So there's a lot that can be said here. And that's really why um, I produced it. And, you know, Bishop Schneider has thankfully endorsed it along with uh, a number of other people too. And uh, just because the I'm sure the viewers and listeners are curious, what is the worst of all mortal sins, Matthew? That would be idolatry. Idolatry. Which is interesting because then, you know, you get into discussions and people say, you know, isn't the Holocaust the worst mortal sin? Isn't, you know, killing, you know, um, you know, vast majorities of people, you know, could it, killing your king, some people said. Like, you know, when I ask people the question, what is the worst mortal sin? People come up with serious sins, but... The church teaches idolatry is the worst, literally dropping one grain of incense into a dish and worshiping a statue as if it was the God of the universe is the worst of all mortal sins. So that and so much more is no longer widely taught or, or really believed. So it has to be taught. So future generations have the faith and it's not robbed from them. Especially in regards to the fact that there are modern idols mm-hmm. that are new forms of old deities. But let's let's go back to the basics. Aaron, what exactly is a catechism? Why did the church feel the need to create this new doctrinal or textual genre? Great. I think we could pull a simple definition and just say you have a textual artifact. That's that's usually when we hear the term today, we think of it in the noun form. So a textual artifact that just offers a concise, systematic explanation uh, of the truths of the faith. Typically it's coupled with moral life, you know, in our own time, that's, that's really what we're familiar with. So the truths of the faith and then moral praxis, they're, they're usually framed around the commandments, the moral side, the articles uh, of the creed for the, the articles of faith side. And then oftentimes you'll have attached, you know, explanations of the sacraments or other means of grace, prayer, so on. Um, that's, that's kind of what we've become familiar with. Of course, the the, uh, as, as Matthew alluded to, you know, the genre itself is, is quite old. It's something that scholars also debate, you know, where to, where to pull the, the first pin, you know, on the genre. I think typical, of course, we think of uh, Canisius and Bellarmine as really early uh, around the Tridentine period, uh, 1500s, mid-1500s. But, but really most, I think, would draw the, the bookend of the genre right around Lateran IV. So the early 1200s, you have the the dawn of uh, the confessional manuals, they're usually called, which is after Lateran IV, so you have this ecumenical council, part of its decrees are to require the, the Easter duty that we call it, you know, nowadays, we at least receiving the Blessed Sacrament once per year at Easter. Uh, that would necessitate typically a confession immediately beforehand, which in turn would necessitate, and this was again part of the work of Lateran IV, 1215, uh, some regular rudimentary instruction in the faith, you know, make sure that uh, the faithful know what to confess uh, and, and how to do that well. And so you have really the, the growth of this kind of the, the baby catechisms, uh, which really begins in the 1200s there, mid to late 1200s, where you start to see these confessional manuals that are, are really kind of how-to books for priests in the confessional. Uh, and they start to add more and more material in terms of instruction. So kind of regular homily cycles, uh, things that they can introduce at the parish level, really in this lead up to Lent and Easter, 
uh, where they can expect, you know, a deluge of uh, confessions and uh, and early communions. That's that's really kind of a the the nascence, the growth of the uh, the genre as a whole. And that's that's the context of one of the earliest catechisms in your set, Aaron, which is that of Saint Thomas Aquinas. Can you tell us all about at all about his catechism? Sure. Uh, so th there are many kind of printings of, of you borrowing the title, you know, the Aquinas Catechism, and that that can be any number of things. I've seen all kinds of different iterations of it. Uh, so our, and ours is really a, a, was a pretty common one from his what are known as the Opus Scula. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, like uh, many good priests of the uh, the Middle Ages, high Middle Ages, really the, the, the big uh, halcyon years of if you were a Catholic and you wanted to really take a night on the town, you know, you'd you'd go to the public square and hear a disputation. <laughs> uh, so you'd get a priest out. Sometimes they would be uh, doctoral candidates, we would, we would call them nowadays, where they're going to uh, defend, you know, a major theological thesis. And they would just do this in the open air, um, oftentimes, again, in the, in the town square to large crowds. You know, I, I'd love to see, you know, the hecklers at an event like that. I don't know what that would be like. But uh, but so Aquinas has this this wide range of texts that are taken down both himself and then generally his scribes, um, kind of his uh, his secretaries that would follow him, and they were often cycles of sermons that he would give as routine kind of instructions in the basics of the faith. So those who are who have a uh, you know waded into uh, the Aquinas corpus maybe in the Summa or or some of the scriptural commentaries know that it can get really deep, you know, really heady, really fast. Uh, he is, of course, the angelic doctor. The opuscula are loved by many for that reason. It's really the, the great doctor at his most simple and accessible and uh, really explanatory for, for lay audience. Uh, and so that a, a number of those, the opuscula, were uh, kind of compiled into a, a, a catena, and then, and then, really packaged as a catechism, really as a as a standalone text, uh, which offers the angelic doctors walk through the articles of the creed, the commandments, uh, and then Christian prayer and uh, worship. So that's in uh, so Aquinas, among a few other medieval texts, are in uh, volume six of the the Trinovac series. Okay, yeah. So it seems like the 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 textual genre of the catechism is making written. What was already really even in the early church, the patristic era, the rule of faith, these oral oral doctrines, which were written in this simplified creedal form, which is really just a summarization of an entire catechetical program, which is given orally. But now the catechisms are putting them down in writing. Now, Matthew, you write on, in the back of your your catechism, you mention Peter Canisius. And uh -huh. I think I think that Peter Canisius is is he seems to be a very pivotal figure, but lesser known, a lesser known doctor of the church. And, and you write that he really writes the first catechism. So what makes his catechism different than what came before? What, what sort of makes this a new catechism era with Peter? Yeah. Kinnick? Yeah. The Canisius was, I think really, you know, fundamentally different because it was really, you know, if I look at the, the catechisms and I would say, you know, what purpose were they made for? That one was really to combat the Protestantism that was surrounding him in Germany at the time. That was really the, the whole reason why he did it. And if you look, it was actually very effective. I, I, if people can look up, you know, Pope Benedict XVI widely referred to that. He said it was even called, you know, the catechism by some people in Germany for a long time because of the instrumental impact that it had 
encountering Protestantism at the time. And it really shows how it wasn't meant for just one particular, um, you know, small people. It was really meant for whole nations. It was meant to combat different ideas. And what I really like about a lot of these older catechisms, and that's something that I try to put forward in a lot of my work and in my articles and in my catechism courses as well, is that they really teach, of course, the same faith, but in different different angle. They're, they have a different audience. They have a different purpose. So, for instance, the Hayes Catechism, I think, is fantastic for, for somebody who doesn't want the simplicity, for instance, of the Baltimore Catechism that a lot of people watching this are probably familiar with, but you want more drawn-out explanations. I, for instance, refer to the Hayes Catechism sometimes. Like when somebody asked me recently for my work with fasting, what were the traditional exemptions to fasting uh, for somebody who was who was older or ill or pregnant? What did the catechism teach? I think the Hayes Catechism was one of the best ones, laying out those exceptions, uh, because he did it in a lot more detail, where, for instance, other catechisms don't. So I think the Kinesius was very effective at his time in combating German Protestantism. And I think that, I think, you know, the, the fathers of Trent looked at that, and one of the reasons that they issued the catechism was really to universally, try, you know, triumph over a lot of the errors at the time. We see that for its truly authoritative nature on, on the topic. Some other catechisms are, are very, you know, localized, very specific, but uh, the Kinesias, I think, can still be widely used today because we're still under the influence of Protestantism in many places, and it can still be an effective tool. Yes. Aaron, one of the, one of the, unique things i think when you're when you're talking with mainstream catholics or even even academics academic catholics professors they'll say they'll quote the most recent catechism the 92 and following editions of the newest catechism known as the catechism of the catholic church um and they'll say the catechism says x so there's the phrase the catechism as which sort of implies that that is the catechism but it seems to me that if there if there is any catechism of all the thousands of catechisms that could be called the catechism it would be the roman catechism to be would you say that aaron would you say that that's sort of the standard of all catechisms in terms of its universality and antiquity what do you think it's, it's a great it's a great point although you've you've got me all confused you know the, the catechism the cat um yeah no i i think uh at least in terms of of um what we could say magisterial weight uh there's there's no question that the roman catechism is is certainly still the the preeminent text i mean you have in that case uh, a catechism that is ordered by an ecumenical council it's composed in session you know during the the sitting of the council uh, the said sessions are overseen by saints, you know, <laughs> so you have a number of saints present in uh, and amongst the council fathers. But um, but but then all, you know, under under this direction of, you know, compi compiling a text uh, intended for the priests, especially. Um, I mean, really exclusively it's intended for priests. Uh, and then in order to for them to kind of equip them for the mission again of teaching, which. By the time of Trent, this is really you know, three centuries after Lateran IV, uh, and you have this, this common kind of uh, request for a text like this at that time, especially coupled with, uh, as, as Matthew's not, and he knows the significance of uh, the print technology. I mean, there's nothing like what happens in, in between 
well, really, even the, the convening of Trent and its conclusion. I mean, even in that space of time, you have these rapid advances in how the, the printing technology is, is being developed. And so in the 16th century, that's really when you see some of these watershed technological things happening, as well as uh, distribution technologies. This is something I would love to see a book. Matthew, this is your next book. Okay, you got to work on it. <laughs> uh, someone doing a, just a history of the the actual uh, genre, you know, itself, um, but specifically it's, it's production. So there, there are these fascinating anecdotes in, uh, especially in the 16th century, when you have these emerging laws against, you know, the publication of Catholic works as more and more of these, you know, one-time Catholic nations fall to uh, Protestant reign of, of one kind or another. Uh, and so there are many of these local and even national laws against the production of Catholic works in print, you know, because you have these, this, uh, nefarious new devices that can make words really fast and, and then get them out, you know, really fast. And so, uh, so all these laws begin passing, you know, censorship laws of one kind or another. And then there are these amazing stories of Catholic families, you know, pooling their resources and buying, let's say a, a wagon back press, which is one of the first, uh, means of technologically printing, uh, in a in a mobile unit, you know, formerly you first you had to have a whole scriptorium, right? People handwriting texts. Well, then you had maybe a, a major press, one of the early presses. Well, those things took up a building, you know, in themselves. Uh, and then they, they kind of were able to scale down. Maybe it was just one large room or, you know, half of a barn or this kind of thing. Well, then the wagon back press, you know, changed all that. You had something that you could actually move if you had a team of horses you know, from place to place. And so you'd have these Catholic families go in together to get a press and they'd set it up and you'd have like the neighborhood meeting of, of Catholics underground and they would come, they'd crank out like maybe two books, you know, in a, in a night. And then those would go out, you know, they'd, they'd pass each other in the market, you know, and, and hand one off. I mean, this kind of stuff is, is part of, of our legacy, you know, as, as a handing on the faith. It's, it's incredibly edifying. But but yeah, to your original point, <laughs> uh, I do. I think Trent would at least at least we have to say, especially in that era where uh, printing has accelerated and there's a need for texts like this, uh, Trent absolutely answers that call and is still to date. I mean, the most magisterially authoritative of of the catechisms, really as a whole, the Roman Catechism. And you, this just as an aside, but an important aside, um, your Tredevox work Aaron is dedicated to the memory of the English martyrs under the Anglican regime certainly probably the one of the worst Protestant regimes um, persecuting Catholics and hunting down those who kept the faith and what anything you can tell us about the legacy of the English martyrs and their their the, the our forefathers in England in, in regards to the catechisms well there'd be too much. It'd be a whole show. Um, boy. Well, what, one of the things we do try to do with each volume is kind of tell the story of each catechism, or at least at least set some of the context up. So we so we do an extended preface. I, I can't claim uh, uh, the distinction of, of being a decorated author like Mr. Lazy, <laughs> but I can at least say I've written some prefaces. So that, that, is, uh, that is one of the things we try to do with each of these volumes is help readers kind of enter the mind of uh, any any reader who would be picking up one of these texts for the first time in their given you know time and place, um, and there are several that we do draw from 
the period of the of the uh, English martyrs and confessors, all the way from the initial break, you know, the, the schism, Henry VIII, um, uh, really all the way through our own time. I mean, the last of the English penal laws aren't aren't listed until the late 1800s. I mean, there there are even some vestiges into the 20th century that kind of have to get finally cleaned up and, and cleared away um, in England. So, so we do, we try to, we try to kind of set the stage in each of those volumes. A number of these are from that period. Uh, the whole project is devoted to uh, the memory of the legacy, English martyrs and confessors. And just to, I mean, really even our, our initial volume, volume one, this is, this contains, uh, there's, there are three catechisms in this one. Um, and one of the most remarkable is, is Vose, Father Lawrence Vose, uh, who is a, an English priest in, in the very years of the transition, you know, from uh, Catholic, you, you know, it, it's hard for us to even get our minds around the idea of a nation that's been a Catholic kingdom for a thousand years. Uh, and then almost overnight, you know, within a generation, you have uh, these, these things that were common practice and belief for anybody, your neighbor, you know, anybody on the street, uh, become now these uh, crimes of treason, you know, punishable by death. And Father Vose is, uh, is one of those. His catechism, which, which is in this volume, is part of the evidence that is brought to the doc for his trial. He's, he's directly interrogated to say, are you the same Lawrence Vose who, who authored a popish catechism in English, you know, and, and holding it up, uh, which he confesses to, you know, on the stand. Uh, he's, he spends the rest of his life in prison and dies there as a, as a confessor. He's regarded as a martyr um, in the in the English college as well at Rome. So, and there are just innumerable accounts like that. Excellent. Well, we'll have to have another show on English martyrs. Uh, Matthew, uh, Aaron mentioned how the Roman Catechism sort of carries the most doctrinal weight, magisterial weight. Um, so I have two questions. One, how do we determine the magisterial weight of or authority of a catechism? And two, can you give us any more detail on, on the magisterial weight of that catechism, the Roman catechism? Um, is it infallible? Is it uh, de fide? What exactly is it? That's an important point, And it's something a lot of people get hung up on. And, but catechisms are not infallible. There is, there is no, you know, you can't pick, I mean, I mean, there's great catechisms. I really like, for instance, the, the Father Stephen Keenan Catechism from 1846. I like that one a lot. I refer to that one. Um, I refer to um, the Darby Catechism. So, you know, great things. There's nothing in there I would point out and say this is just fundamentally wrong. Whereas, for instance, we could have such debate around changes to the modern catechism from 92. But, but that being said, even though with, you know, such a respected catechism, you can say it's infallible. But you can say catechisms are composed of infallible teaching as well as non-infallible teaching. That is fallible teaching. So for something to be infallible, it's important to note that it does not just have to require the Pope, you know, issuing a, a statement of infallibility. Some people also get hung up on infallibility when you start to throw that word out there. They're like, oh, there's actually only two infallible things, right? You know, when the Pope declared the Assumption of Our Lady or the Immaculate Conception, like, well, you know, there's a lot of other dogmas of the faith too you know for instance god is eternal is a dogma it does not require somebody to come out you know who is a pope and issue a day feed a statement like that has been believed since ancient times so dogmas are things that are public revelation revealed by god necessary for our salvation which the church uh, posits that all of us have to believe in 
And, uh, you know, in my work at catechismclass.com, you know, we have a adult faith formation class. And one of the things I do towards the end of that class is recap is roughly 255 dogmas of the faith, you know, read through them. These are things you have to know, but that doesn't mean the catechism only is a list of dogmas. You know, there is no official list of all these different dogmas because, because it's just um, something the church has never put together. But, you know, there's a lot more than just those, those two statements. So that being said, um, the catechism or any catechism uh, could certainly have fallible uh, uh, items in it, and they could be open to change. Uh, we'll probably talk about it later, but I think the Dutch catechism is a prime example of somebody publishing a catechism that is erroneous. So, um, yes. but even before Vatican II, we have, you know, great catechism. That doesn't mean everything in there is truly perfect. And, uh, but that being said, the Roman catechism issued by an ecumenical council backed by many of the teachings of Trent, which, which did define matters of dogma are in there. So, and whenever we're looking at something in a catechism, I always tell people or, or anything, look at the sources. Is it referring a dogmatic source? Is it a dog, dogmatic declaration? Is it just uh, something else? So you really have to look teaching by teaching there to see what is the fide and what is not. Yeah, so a catechism is making written what has been passed down mostly orally or liturgically in various ways. And each of these different propositions hold different doctrinal weights depending on what is being said, how it's being said, what's being sourced. Um, Aaron, uh, has, has there been, you know, we've mentioned now two modern catechisms, the new catechism, the 92 catechism and follow, I don't know what we call it, the CCC, the newest <laughs> catechism, um, newest as well as, as Sorry, what? The newest edition of the newest. The newest catechism. new new edition of the new catechism. Because um, how many there's because there's the 92, but then there was another one after that under John Paul II, I think. Right. And then there's the third one under Francis. How many editions of the of the newest catechism are there? How many new editions? I don't even know. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know. Quiz. You're counting. Yeah. If you count, uh, if you count publishing houses. Or uh, or base manuscript. I mean, that's part of you know the great challenge with uh, with really the history of the genre as a whole, which is uh -huh. uh, the translation. You know, so so you have you, you have base texts. Frequently, they're they're Latin, but not always. Uh, and then and then you know any number of multi-language iterations. I mean, Bellarmine or Canisius. I mean, mentioned him earlier. He's he's he still is. He still holds the honor of being the most published Dutch author uh, in history, just ever, full stop. He is, he is the bestseller uh, from medieval, late medieval times, you know, the early modern period, and still to date. It, it's incredible. So, and and that comprises every major language family. So, um, yeah, to the 92, the catechism formerly known as the 92. What are we going to call this thing? This I was trying to look up the actual numbers of editions. So we'll get back to that. We also mentioned, you just mentioned the Dutch catechism, which is a notorious catechism for, I think it was 67, if I recall. Uh -huh. But, Aaron, my question for you is, what kind of bad catechisms did we have to deal with before Vatican II, before all this, in centuries past? Have there been many bad catechisms before this? Yes, the the bad cats. Uh, we we do. We, there are a number of them. Um, the well, it should should point out why no one has ever heard of them. So formerly, um, 
the church's typical kind of practice, the common practice was to censor uh, rather than approve. So, so the base assumption for anyone writing a catechism, these are typically bishops uh, writing their own uh, or, or, or commanding that they be, you know, directing the composition of one uh, or, you know, failing that, promulgating it up upon their ordinary authority. So uh, I, I think, Matthew, you mentioned the, the kind of the ordinary magisterium, this category of the, the ordinary magisterium. So the bishops throughout the world giving voice to their normal uh, teaching office, the, the ordinary magisterium. Um, and catechisms were frequently an expression thereof. They, in fact, most of the old theological manuals, when they talk about uh, the ordinary magisterium, will reference catechisms as kind of the example par excellence of uh, a, a framing of a, any given bishop's ordinary magisterium. So, so you have kind of the common doctrine of the church that, that's voiced in these, in these texts uh, from bishop to bishop, place to place, you know, time to time. Uh, but again, censorship was typical. Approval was not. So the base assumption was the text comes out from a bishop. It, it, it let, let it stand. Uh, if, if something is really problematic, then it gets censored. Uh, this is kind of the, the classical approach. And the reason that very few have ever even heard of the bad catechisms uh, of yesteryear is that the, per, the uh, part and parcel to uh, the church censoring a text was its oblivion. So the approach was the, the thing must be destroyed. It must be removed from circulation. It, it must be uh, utterly wiped from the historical record. That, that is generally the approach. Um, and of course, the reason is the, the hierarchy takes its duty of saving souls very seriously. Uh, and there is nothing more grave uh, for it, regarding the loss of souls than uh, false doctrine. This is all the way to St. Paul, you know, in the early epistles, um, that if anyone preach, even an angel of God preached to you, you know, gospel other than what, what you have received, let him be anathema. And that even that term, you know, anathema. Uh, it, itself in the early Christian community, it, literally the Greek meant, you know, it's let it be destroyed, cut off, forbidden, you know, never seen again. Um, and so that that is the, the church's approach. And that is why no one has ever heard of the catechisms of uh, Croiset, uh, Puget, uh, Montpelier, uh, uh, I'm trying to think of some other the same game. There, there, okay. Many of them. Tell us the story of any of these. Do we have... Uh, any yes. story of what these, how, what were these catechisms? When did they come out? Why were they so bad? And why did they get consigned to the flames? Sure. I, I'll, I'll focus on one uh, era that I, I kind of mentioned as an aside in an article, I don't know, maybe a year or two years ago. It was a crisis, I think, on, on weaponized catechisms. Because it, it, it occurred to me that this, this is this is total news to people and, and it's worth, uh, it's worth knowing, especially for those like Matthew was saying, if anyone, anyone who's operating under the illusion that like a catechism is an infallible text just per se, you know, in itself. And so, um, so yeah, if, if you think that it's going to be a shocker, it's going to be okay. You know, don't be scandalized, but it'll be a shocker to learn that, you know, there have been these catechisms that have appeared under, you know, ecclesiastical approval. They have been, issued under, uh, I mean, they didn't have imprimatur until relatively recently, but, uh, but, but anyways, issued by, you know, bishops issued authoritatively as systematic presentations of the Catholic faith 
It's just that they also were deploying doctrinal errors in, in the text itself. Um, and probably the most notable uh, example is Jansenist France. Um, there are several bishops. Uh, this is predates St. Therese, but she lives in the midst of this. And there's some really uh, some interesting writing on kind of her and the exposure to Jansenism, but um, because she, she has to live really in this, uh, in the wake of this, this huge problem in France, which was the Jansenist heresy. Uh, and so you, you essentially have, uh, it, it's almost a Calvinist system. It's very similar in, in a lot of respects to a Calvinist system. You have uh, really strong kind of uh, uh, predestination and especially errors on grace, justification, and, uh, and then kind of connected errors with regard to sacramental practice. This is, off, this is also where, especially in France, you have this, uh, this kind of moral rigorism uh, in regards to uh, receiving our Lord in the Blessed Sacrament. Uh, so communion is really looked down upon almost full stop is, is kind of looked down upon discouraged. Um, so, so there's a lot of issues in the early and then mid and late 1700s in France. In the midst of that, um, you get a number of bishops who are, are Jansenists. They, they, um, begin adopting some of these Jansenist tenets. They, they preach them, uh, publicly, they write about them. And a number of them begin to compose catechisms or uh, endorse catechisms by Jansenist authors or uh, that are heavily influenced and uh, amenable to the, the old theological censure was a savoring of heresy. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so there are a number of texts like this, probably the most, I, I don't like even bringing up a lot of them because I think the old practice was a wise one. Just destroy it, let it be forgotten. Anathema <laughs> it. Uh, uh, but, but one of them that uh, is still pretty pretty well known, um, especially uh, any of your listeners that are in Europe, I think this is a little more known across the pond, um, is, is the Catechism of Montpelier, what, what's, what's uh, later called the, the Catechism of Montpelier. And it goes into several iterations and they, they try to pull back and pretty much any edition of the text that you can find now will be uh, a remedied, uh, a sanitized version. But, um, but in point of fact, this is one of many catechisms that show up. They're issued by the bishop. Bishop says, this is the faith. Hey, priests, this is what we're going to teach. Uh, this is what needs to be preached on Sunday, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and then you're a, a lay Catholic, you know, in the pew. And if you, if you hop the border and go, you know, across to the neighboring diocese, you'll get the faith of your fathers. Uh, but if you stick around and go to mass next Sunday and father is preaching from the new catechism that his bishop commanded or authored, uh, you'll get something different. You, you, you won't get the faith of your father. So yes, th th there are examples of this um, uh, predating the, the 21st and 20th uh, century. But um, I think as uh, you alluded to earlier, it's, it's an endemic issue uh, following the second Vatican council. Uh -huh. Yeah, I, I looked it up and um, so there's so there's three editions of the new catechism. We have the newest new catechism, but the, the 92, the original John Paul II catechism, the OG CCC is 1992. And then there was a 97. That was the Latin typical edition. And that was the first revision of the death penalty under John Paul II. And then you had 2018 under Pope Francis. So there's three editions of the 
current newest catechism, whatever you want to call it. Um, Matthew, any other interesting catechism tidbits, good or bad, pre-Vatican II before we, we start to touch on some of the things that have happened since? Well, something that came to mind that Aaron mentioned that I think is important is that um, the mindset of doctrine that is that is bad, that is evil, must be destroyed. And that's something that I, you know, publicly encourage people to do. So something that I do is occasionally I go to thrift stores, you know, so not to publishers, but to books that are already in print. And if I find things there, you know, for instance, I found many Lutheran catechisms over the years. I, I, I buy them and I burn them. So that way somebody else isn't browsing the shelf and like, oh, maybe I should get into religion. You know what? Oh, here's a book. I'll read this. You know, I would hate for that to fall into bad hands. So, you know, I buy those, I buy Mormon books, I buy all kinds of different things if I think they could be overtly insidious and I just simply destroy them. Um, and I think that's something in the realm of possibility for a lot of people who, you know, you can go out there and that could just be one of the works of mercy you kind of start to start to do, especially if it's only a couple dollars, you know, a soul is certainly worth more than a couple dollars. So get those out of the works and, and really destroy them. And another thing too that comes to mind is, you know, I was reading, and I don't remember what book I read this years ago. It was in a, in a seminary library, and they were talking about preaching in the Middle Ages and how all preachers were really not, not the same, not equally gifted. And it wasn't just in terms of their own expression. It was that some of them were badly formed, really showing the need for very early on. You needed to have, a, you know, better priestly formation, better catechesis as well. Even at that time, the one instance that I read about that I thought was interesting was there was a priest in one area of Europe, and I don't remember where, but he was publicly telling people not to pray to St. Jude, that he was not a saint worth praying to because he was the one who betrayed our Lord. And he, he basically confused Judas and Jude. Oh, and what? then he wrote about it. He talked about it. He would go preaching around. Hmm. We got to stop this devotion to St. Jude. He didn't realize he was a different person. So, you know, we have bad preaching now. We, we have bad priests now. It is not... <laughs> You know, something that is only happening in our era. You know, it happened in the past, too. So the wisdom of the church and, and what she did in the past can certainly apply to our era as we, you know, look kind of like I did with the Roman Catechism. I'm trying to make it available and presentable for modern heirs. Same thing with these sort of um, mindset beforehand. We can apply it to the problems we face in our church today to try to do our part to rectify those problems. Yeah, uh, and, and as you're you're saying with Aaron, uh, anathema means to destroy utterly. That was the uh, the book of Joshua when they fight AI. Someone took of the anathema, and that was what, or under Jericho rather, um, because Jericho was supposed to be total anathema, so they had to destroy it. But it makes me think of Acts nineteen nineteen, and many of them who had followed curious arts brought together their books and burnt them before all. And counting the price of them, they found the money to be 15,000 pieces of silver. Sounds pretty expensive, but as you said, Matthew, it's uh, an immortal soul is worth uh, infinitely more than uh, all the riches in the world. So, Aaron, before we get into Vatican II catechisms, how do we... You've been through so many different catechisms uh, sifting in your editor editorship, um, how do you determine um, the consensus of the faith? How do you determine a good catechism? Um, how do you determine what is the consensus of the faith going through all these catechisms? Well, determining the consensus is is definitely above our pay grade. We we uh, we just we just let uh, 
we let the dead guys speak for themselves, right? Uh, that's very much our approach. Our, our really only task at editorial capacity is to find uh, the texts that are, are themselves really the best iteration of a given catechism or uh, the most outstanding amongst so many. So we, we do have a number of criteria. The first, of course, is ecclesiastical approbation. Does it have some level of, again, the imprimatur didn't exist until rather recently, um, formerly, the, the way that one determined, you know, uh, a level of approval from the church's hierarchy was these approbations. You would have, often from the Holy See, so you would have the author write directly to uh, the Holy See and say, Holy Father, you know, here's a copy of my book. I, I invested great expense to have a copy created, you know, just for you to, to have, you know, have your censors review. Um and, you know, we'd, we'd uh, seek your blessing on the work itself. And so frequently you'll find old catechisms that'll just have a standalone page of uh, a letter, let's say, from the Holy Office or the Pope or a cardinal at his direction saying, you know, we, we bless you and, and this work and thank you for it kind of a thing. Um, frequently, though, the text would meet with almost immediate reception from neighboring bishops. So that was always kind of a common really first wave uh, of, of triage for those looking was uh, are there are there bishops in the immediate surround that say oh finally you know we, we have a systematic presentation that is going to be more serviceable in our country or in our region uh, than the one that we have been using you know formally so and that's part of the reason there are again so many is that uh, this was really old hat for bishops if you saw that there was a need especially some major moral issue you know that hadn't been addressed in a previous text uh, or, or something, you know, liturgical or doctrinal, uh, you would, you would compose a new catechism or have one, uh, loosely based on some kind of, uh, you know, progenitor, and then you'd, you'd kind of riff on it, you know, do your own. So that, that's, that's where we really get so many. Um, uh, and that's, that's what we're about at, at Tradivox is just finding those kind of the most outstanding, uh, of those texts. Again, we have to focus on English only at least to start, but, um, and then really presenting those. The, our, our biggest kind of task editorially is is uh, the cross-referencing um, really capacity of, of each of the texts. So, so many of these authors will use just copious citations that, that aren't um, noted or, or aren't thoroughly noted. So they'll say, you know, as, as it says in the, the Summa, you know, dot, 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 and no citation. Or they'll say, you know, as it is in uh, City of God book two, but, you know, no, no chapter reference for Augustine's giant, you know, multi-book uh, uh, City of God. So things like that, that, that's really where the heavy lifting comes in uh, on our project is we source all of these notes. We put them in the same format, standardized across. Uh, and then there's, then you have a thematic index that can, that can get you through, you know, any one of these texts at, at any point. And um, so a book like Canisius's, uh, you know, he writes three catechisms, of course. Uh, one of them is the big one, you know, so our our uh, our Canisius volume, which is nine, I believe, uh, has has his his little one, which is the most really successful and famous of all uh, of, of the three that he wrote. And then his his big one uh, in the same volume, his big one has I don't even remember. It's like, I don't know, thousands of of annotations, you know, so anybody looking for like Matthew was saying, you know, ammunition for your Protestant uh, 
uh, you know, apologetics course, that's, that's where you go is Canisius has this incredible amount of reference material. And so, so that, that's really how we do the, the picking. Yeah. Okay. So Matthew, let's talk about Vatican II and its aftermath. Um, there's a, some significant catechisms that are produced leading up to Vatican II, sort of in the modern era. Obviously, the Baltimore Catechism is the most one of the most famous in the United uh -huh. States. Uh, there's also the Catechism of Pius X as well, but he also promotes the Roman Catechism as well. Yes. And then what's really interesting is Romario Mano mentions this synod of 1960 the the roman synod of 1960 where john the 23rd actually says that the roman catechism should again be republished but that's ignored that never gets done and then vatican ii is happening there's all this revolution happening and it, i think i think the dutch catechism is the first great shot across the bow in terms of bad catechisms am i right and if can you tell us about the dutch catechism yeah, the Dutch Catechism, that's kind of like, I, I kind of feel like maybe I shouldn't say too much because like Aaron said, like you learn a bit and then you might want to go pick up a copy and it's something I would never encourage, you know, somebody to, to get. But the Dutch Catechism, you know, was from 1966. It was really, you know, I think it was the first post-Vatican, the, the first post-Vatican II Catechism. And um, it was initiated, you know, really by the bishops in the Netherlands. And the, it had a lot of problems. And in fact, that's one of the reasons you don't really hear about it anymore, thankfully. Now, it did initially have an imprimatur. That's something to be interesting. Some people say like, oh, if something does not have an imprimatur, I want nothing to do with it. If it does have an imprimatur, it must be, you know, quasi infallible, you know, and that's simply not the case. So uh, the Bishop of Burlington, Vermont, I believe it was, he actually withdrew his imprimatur from the American edition of the book. Um, and then, you know, the book actually continued to go to press with an unauthorized use of the original imprimatur, which I believe came from a cardinal in the Netherlands. Uh, but, but a lot of places in the United States, for instance, the Daughters of St. Paul, they, they have a store here in Chicago. Um, they refused to, to, to display it, sell it. So some other people, when they actually got into the actual text, and uh, one of those problems with the text was, was uh, contraception, you know, talking about that really seeming like they were going to be open to that um you know like as in you know regulation of births i think they said was something that uh you know the christian conscience could basically look at the they referred to the council of vatican II giving no definitive answer kind of leaving it open for people to be like you know is contraception right for me you know really the door to situation ethics and and, and errors and thankfully that was that was addressed by humana vitae uh, but but even, you know, there's one quote that I that I have written from the Dutch Catechism, and it says, quote, until very recently, the Bible was regarded too much as a scientific manual and not enough as a story written to throw God's light on the existing world. That's, you know, statements uh, that you get, you know, this is when we enter the Vatican II era of, you know, <laughs> exactly, Vatican II era of uncertainty and what does this really mean? What did what did that actually say? You know, was it trying to say that the Holy Scriptures were not actually a historical document anymore? You know, were they saying that they were just, you know, an expression of God's love as some sort of a metaphysical or or, or a metaphor? You know, should should I interpret the events in uh, in the scriptures as historical or not? So these are just some of the errors in it. So the Dutch Catechism was actually a complete failure. Um, and, and thankfully, really after 92. You don't hear about it anymore. You don't see it. 
And I would definitely say if you happen to find one in the bookstore, you can just throw that in the burn pile too. Yeah, I, I was just trying to bring up the uh, the UCAT, which also says a similar thing about the Bible, unfortunately, that it's, I was, I'll bring it up on the screen in a minute, but um, yeah, th this is one of the issues that I've studied is, is the, the infallibility, the inerrancy of the Holy Scripture and what comes after. And I, I think it, it reflects the, the trad critique of Vatican II. I mean, we here we have bishops who were just at Vatican II voting and, you know, they were just there. And now they're implementing Vatican II. So this is not just, you know, some hotshot Jesuit who's just making up stories about Vatican II. These are the actual bishops who just left Rome and they went home and then they published a catechism with an imprimatur with a bunch of heresy in it. Mm -hmm. So it's not simply the fact that, oh, Vatican II is, is this perfect thing and then it gets abused. We have a, a much more gray, messy situation going on here. Um, Aaron... Can any more anything more that you can tell us about bad catechisms? I know Archbishop Lefebvre mentions some bad French catechisms that he in his book, um, uh, Letter to Confused Catholics. Any any more horror stories that should be anathema sit consigned to the flames, Aaron? I, I unfortunately, the Tradivox project has the regrettable distinction of of being in possession of what is perhaps the largest private collection of bad catechisms uh, in the country, if, if not more. Yeah, yeah, actually, actually, Aaron gave me this mug, which says, it says, dubium may contain heresy. So this is, isn't this like a sticker that you put on these? Bad it is. I, I have, I have the roll right here. They come to, they come to us from, you know, it's, it's donation or it's purchase. And so I've, I've had to generate this roll of, of uh, private label stickers, you know, may contain heresy research purposes only because, uh, because I do there, there are, yeah, unfortunately it's, it's a tsunami. I mean, after, after the Dutch catechism, which, which very much does bear uh, that, uh, that mark of being really the first, they're the first of the four, uh, you know, hardly the council had closed, right? 65. I mean, you have less than a year later, uh, this, this text appears. And it does appear under imprimatur, the Dutch, uh, the Dutch cardinal Alfrink, and um, uh, the entire uh, episcopate of the Netherlands is. They are never disciplined. This text is never falls under you know official censure. There's some blowback, uh, but you know it just it just goes along. And unfortunately, it in turn you know informs many textbook series and and uh, that that in their turn go into print. And uh, more grievously, it it just is a it's a it's a what do they call that the the whistle thing? It's it's a dog whistle, right? Because immediately in the wake of this text, you suddenly they're everywhere. You have you have catechisms that are the Dutch is not even the worst. I mean, I, I hate to say uh, again at the risk of scandalizing, but there are texts that appear under imprimatur that just that just out and out. Uh, I think my favorite. I'll save some of the, the actual blurbs for later in the series. I, we're going to do a few that are topically focused, so I'm, I'm going to save some of them. But uh, but but one of my one of my uh, the most noteworthy to my mind is there's a there's a catechism under Imprimatur that talks about uh, uh, doing away with the term premarital sex because you know that's that's kind of has this bad connotation of of naughtiness and sins against the uh, sixth and ninth commandment and so on. We're going to do away with that. Let's talk instead about 
uh, pre-ceremonial sex, because really deep down, these people are married, you know, when they want to give themselves to each other physically. And, and even though they haven't had the ceremony, is that really so important? So we really need to, you know, I mean, th and this is just, it wow. is almost par for the course. I mean, there are, there are umpteen examples like that. Uh, so, so I, 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 I got my, got my copy of my, my the UCAT here. Uh, so here's the, let me just look at the approbations here. Um, so here's the U UCAT forward by Pope Benedict, Ignatius press, um, published in 2010 in Germany, Nihil Opstad and Imprimatur, uh, by various bishops. I mean, what comes out of Germany is typically bad, but it's got a forward from Pope Benedict and it's published by Ignatius press. But, uh, we have this this ditty here uh number 15 how can the sacred scripture be truth if not everything in it is right answer the bible is not meant to convey precise historical information or scientific findings to us moreover the authors were children of their time they shared the cultural ideas of the world around them and often were also dominated by its errors nevertheless everything that man must know about god and the way of his salvation is found with infallible certainty in sacred scripture so, in other words, the Bible contains errors that are result of cultural errors, and this is just by. yeah. And this is just the, the the door that the modernists open so that they can put. Uh, well, it was erroneous about this, so therefore, you know, the sixth commandment is, you know, that's just a kind of a cultural thing that it was true then, and it's not true now. That's modernism. You know, and there, yeah, that that, that is, is exactly. the definition of modernism. Yep, Things change go. over time, and we are a modern people, so that doesn't apply. Yes, so well, it, it puts lay people in this in this totally, uh, you know, topsy turvy position, right? Where where suddenly, you know, we we have to question the doctrinal integrity of again the imprimatur itself, uh, any given text that may bear it. Um, so it's, it's totally, uh, backwards. It's unjust, you know, all those things. And this is, I'm so glad we're, we're even having this conversation because, you know, as, as Catholic men, you know, maybe we're, we're husbands or fathers, you know, we, we you shouldn't need right advanced degrees to read a catechism. You, you shouldn't, you shouldn't need to have you know, this profound understanding of levels of magisterial authority, the degrees of assent that ascribe to any one of those, what the theological censures are and how they might be applied. I mean, all of these things are, are really important, uh, but for lay people trying to save their souls, you know, raise their families, uh, maybe help father with the, uh, the catechism for first communicants, this kind of stuff. Um, this is exactly the kind of thing that we shouldn't be, <laughs> be doing, right? Is, is trying to vet uh, what we're receiving from the hierarchy. But in point of fact, I mean, we, we have to recognize that these are not normal times. The church is not in a healthy ecclesiastical period. Uh, folks that are a little more well-read in history, that, that won't uh, phase them, right? We've, we've been there, done that kind of thing. Um, and Christ is Lord of the church and will weather the storm, et cetera, et cetera. But on the ground, right, it's cold comfort to, <laughs> to lay people trying to, trying to navigate these waters. So it is, it, it's a, it's it's massively confusing when you when you can point to a text either that has you know this kind of approbation and say but this says this and then this whole shelf of you know every catechism issued prior to that year they all say this and 
one of these things is not like the other, right? So that that is very much where I think the the Vincentian canon comes in, that what has been held always everywhere by all, you know, we, we can do the kind of very basic triage that the census fide really has to be able to do, what, what we have to be able to do uh, in, in virtue of our baptism in terms of forming ourselves in the faith and passing that on to whoever our responsibles might be. Uh-huh. Well, we, we spent most of this hour talking about catechisms other than the newest new catechism edition, formerly known as the 92 catechism. But <laughs> next time we'll have to delve further into the most commonly referenced catechism today and all of the issues that arise from that. Uh, Matthew, do you have any final thoughts on the catechism crisis before we end it out? Yeah, so it, it's not really just the catechism. It's more than that. So, you know, with my work with catechismclass.com, I not only help parents, you know, teach the faith to the children, I, I help good priests, good directors of religious education, deacons, etc., have access to great resources, programs that combine scripture, good catechisms like the Baltimore Catechism, St. Pius X Catechism, um, and others we use, combining those with works of mercy and prayers and everything so that we actually know the faith. Um, because it's unfortunate it's not just the catechism. There are religious education programs out there that use texts by really big publishing houses. I'm not going to name any, and they have a lot of money behind them. And these, these lessons plans are, you know, quasi heretical, if not, you know, completely heretical. They're completely superficial. They leave children and adults, if they're going through RCA or they're looking at what their children are studying for confirmation or, or any years of CCD, like the faith is a joke, like there's no substance to it. It's not treated with rigor. There's so much that can be done to help people understand that religious education is a responsibility. You know, I spend time trying to learn as a Dominican, a third or Dominican, studying every day something about the faith. And I learn things all the time. And the hubris I hear from some people who say like, well, you know, this can't be true. For instance, you know, some people say like Ember days aren't a thing in the Catholic Church, because if they were a thing, I would have heard about it in CCD growing up. So, you know, like, that, you know, it doesn't mean that you're taught the full body of everything the church has ever taught, you know, and, and that is that comes up because of bad religious education programs. And also, honestly, poor, poor catechesis from teachers too. well-meaning people who just volunteer and they're like, sure, nobody's teaching third grade. I'll teach third grade. They go in. The children are really malleable. They have questions on the faith. You know, how can this be true? You know, I'm learning this in school and the teacher gives a very poor answer or says, I don't know. And, and for that reason, they, you know, some of these children end up believing the faith. So, so much that can be done, not just with what is my catechism and, and, but, you know, make sure your children are learning the faith too. look at what they're learning at, work with your parishes to make sure you have really good resources too, because this is something that, you know, the souls are worth it. They're worth the time. They're worth the focus. If you teach the faith to your children or others, you're a priest or something, you need to spend time studying every single day too. Excellent. Well, in subsequent uh, shows in this series we will be delving into these various catechisms and we're going to be uh the next show we'll talk about the doctrine of the one true church what do the catechisms say about this doctrine what do the modern catechisms say about this doctrine and we'll also be covering adam and eve the death penalty non-catholic worship as well as religious liberty so stay tuned to one peter five make sure you like subscribe share this video and all that good stuff with that let's offer this all to our lady seat of wisdom under her the russian icon of the theotokos of fatima 
Uh, Aaron, can you pray the second half of the Hail Mary for me? Sure. Uh... Excellent. So we'll, we'll, we'll pray a Hail Mary and we'll invoke our patrons here at 1 Peter 5. Let's pray. Name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Amen. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. Blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Amen. Our Lady of Fatima. Pray for us. Blessed Emperor Carl. Pray for us. Saint Maximilian Kolbe. Pray for us. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.